Well, if I haven't met you before, my name is Grant. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Christ the King, and I'm so glad that you've chosen to join us. I want to welcome everybody here at the Bellingham campus. We want to welcome those who are going to be watching at our Ferndale campus, and a special welcome to those of you who are joining us online throughout the week. We're glad that you've chosen to be a part of our church family, and we're just glad that you're here. We've been doing a series called Inside Out about the virtues of the heart. We've covered honesty, loyalty, and humility, and this week we're going to cover a biblical virtue that honestly I would rather just skip over. In fact, in preparation for this series, I I printed off the 52 virtues that we actually lift up in the English language and say those are conditions of the heart that God's people are supposed to have as kind of an outflow. I printed off all 52 of them, then I went through, I circled 10 of my favorites, then we narrowed it down to five. And and what I have to tell you is this. There was one thing on that list, one virtue of the heart on that list, and I looked, I took one look at it, I'm just like, I'm not touching that one with a 10-foot pole. I'm not going there. I don't want to. So we narrowed it down to five, and then I left for a month and a half. I went away for a six-week break. When I came back, the same piece of paper was sitting on my desk, and I went through them again. Yep, 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 yep. Saw the one, skipped over it strategically, went down to my list of five and said, that's what I'm going to do. I didn't want to touch that one because I thought it's dangerous. People are not going to get it. They're just going to think I'm trying to put them on a guilt trip, and they're just going to turn it off. And so I started having an argument with God because every time I came back to that piece of paper, he kept tapping his finger. I said, that one. I want you to talk about that one. God told me to teach it. I said, no. He said, excuse me? And here we go. All right. So let me tell you why I didn't want to teach this one. I didn't want to teach it because I'm not good at it. I'm just plain not good at it. I don't like talking about self-discipline because I am not one of those naturally self-disciplined people. Okay. This is going to start out really, really weird, but I just want you to stick with me. Okay. I have always wanted large biceps, triceps, and pectoral muscles. Okay. I think most guys do, but I have. I told you it was going to start weird. Stick with me. Okay. I've always wanted that, and if you don't know what those particular muscle groups are, ask your neighbor so you're not embarrassed, okay? So, my desire to actually have large biceps, triceps, and pectoral muscles actually drove me to ask my wife for a Christmas gift a couple of years back. I was up one night, couldn't sleep, and I was watching an infomercial. And on this infomercial, a guy with a very cool British accent, which at 3 o'clock in the morning can be very compelling— He explained to me that if I would simply buy this particular product, that I would naturally have large biceps, triceps, and pectoral muscles. In fact, he told me that if I purchased these and used them, that I would become the envy of Arnold Schwarzenegger himself. So I told Laurel, this is what I want for Christmas. I want a set of handy-dandy super push-ups. Because if I get these things, I'm actually going to use them and you're going to be deeply blessed because my physique is going to improve. Now, some of you are judging me right now because I bought these things. And I just want to put you on notice because if I have to, I will come to your house and I know in your basement somewhere, I'm going to find a George Foreman grill, a Ronco pocket fisherman, a Ginsu knife. Some of you even have a Flowbee vacuum haircutting system. I know you do. Okay? So don't judge me for having these things because that's a sin and you'll have to talk to Jesus about it, okay? So I admit it. I had my wife buy these things. They kind of look like defibrillator pads, right? You know, and I might need that by the time we're done, right? 
I promised Laurel that if she bought them for me, I would use them. I kept saying, what a blessing this is going to be for you. (laughs) If I'm able to improve my physique. And I used them about four times. Because let me tell you something. These things make push-ups really hard. I mean, seriously, my shoulders hurt, my chest hurt, my wrists hurt, my hands hurt. I mean, they made me feel terrible. So I quit. I just quit using them. Now, I didn't completely quit using them because what you probably don't know is this. If you actually take one of these really cool things, if you turn it over and put the handle in between the, 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 the cushions on your sofa... You can put a bowl of ice cream on here. And it'll just rotate all the way around until you can ingest that combination of sugar, cream, and fat. It's just so much more fun this way, okay? So I am still using them, all right? Here's a problem that so many of us face. We want change. We want growth, but we don't want to pay any sort of a price for it. I lacked self-discipline, so I ended up abandoning my dream and walking away with absolutely nothing because of this. I wanted change, and I wanted it fast. And when it didn't happen, instantly, I just wanted to walk away. Richard Foster is one of my favorite authors. He wrote this. He said, superficiality is the curse of our age. The doctrine of instant satisfaction is a primary spiritual problem. Let's admit it. We want the spiritual equivalent of P90X. Some of you know what that is, right? Completely transform your body in 90 days if you'll just simply buy the videos and get with the program. And we want that spiritually. We want to get saved and then we want to be instantly loving, instantly wise, instantly in leadership, instantly in knowledge. We want to instantly be a spiritual force to be reckoned with. We want to be able to heal somebody, walk on water, do the whole deal. We want to be able to do it all. And when it doesn't happen overnight, we tend to get discouraged and walk away. We start off with great intentions. Maybe you've heard yourself say this. I'm going to dive deep into the Bible. I'm going to read my Bible from cover to cover this year. They say, I'm, I'm going to serve people. I'm going to have a vital prayer life that changes the world around me. And we start off incredibly strong. And then we get to the book of Numbers. And then all of a sudden, the Bible just doesn't seem so attractive. We, we say, I want to serve people. And then we come to the realization one day that we don't actually even like people. Okay? We say, I'm going to have a prayer life. And it's going to be vital and alive. And then we discover our prayer life is a combination of kind of mind tangents, talking to ourselves and distractions. For some of us, it's like this, you know, dear Jesus, squirrel, right? You know, that's kind of how it works, right? Some of you saw the movie, didn't you? Yeah, all right. You know, here's some questions. What keeps us from growing? What keeps us from staying the course spiritually? What keeps us from digging deep into the deep things of God? What knocks us off track at that point of good intentions? What keeps us falling back into old patterns of sin? Why is our spiritual life so often described as one step forward and two steps back? Well, if you're going to answer those questions, we better start way at the beginning, okay? 
So I'm going to back the truck way, way up. And we're going to start with a very simple truth that we try to talk about every single week here at Christ the King. It sounds like this. It's the first blank in your outline. Whether you're here at Bellingham or at Ferndale, I'm going to invite you to follow along. It sounds like this. This is very remedial for some of you. Just stick with me, okay? Sounds like this. God has offered us the gift of salvation by faith. Ephesians chapter 2 says this. For it is by grace that you have been saved. By grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift from God. Not by works so no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So let's just cover the basics again. Salvation is a gift from God. God offers the free gift to us, even though it was not free for him. Make no mistake, the free gift that he offered us cost him his life. And he offers the gift of salvation to anyone who will accept it. Many years ago, God offered me the gift of salvation, and I took the gift. A couple of Christmases ago, Laurel gave me the gift of super push-ups. I took the gift, but here was the problem. Taking the gift wasn't enough to give me big muscles. I took it, but I didn't use it. I didn't allow it to seep into my life and create a different kind of a lifestyle that produced an outcome. Here's the next piece of truth in your outline. So we get this free gift, and here's the part where a lot of us stumble. After receiving the gift, a response is required. Looking back now, I can tell you something. The response Laurel wanted to her gift of super push-ups was not just, thank you. The gift, or the response was not, you know, I like the gift, but I've kind of lost interest in the gift and the gift giver, so thanks, but no thanks. The response is not, you know, this isn't really wanted anymore. It's not really what I expected. It came with way more strings attached to it, so I'm just not going to do it anymore. No, the response that she wanted as a gift giver with super push-ups was for me to hit the floor morning and night and actually give her 20. That's what we were, she was looking for. Well, Scripture says the same thing when it comes to the gift of salvation. James 2 says this, In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Not slightly ill, it's dead. Which means this, super push-ups with good intentions is dead. Faith with only good intentions is dead is dead. Faith with warm, fuzzy thoughts about trying a little harder, it's dead. Faith without action is dead. Now, I'm not promoting a works theology that says you have to do something in order to get God's love. Oh my goodness, can we make sure we get this one today? You already have God's love. You have God's complete, full, and undivided attention. And he's offered that gift of love to us. And I'm saying we should be doing something so that our faith is alive and vibrant and bringing glory to God. More than just accepting the gift, we should actually be living that gift back out again and spreading it around Whatcom County. Somebody with me today? Anybody at all? Okay? Dallas Willard says this. I love this quote. It says, grace isn't opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. You can't earn God's love. It's just something that he offers. But there's an effort that's supposed to come out of us that allows us to press that amazing grace out into the lives of this person and this person and have it come back and change us and motivate us and inspire us. We need to respond to God's amazing gift 
by living as one who's been saved by grace. But here's a tragic thing that I see over and over and over again. Many people receive the free gift of salvation, but they never actually walk out of the prison of sin that they've spent their whole life in. Jesus opens the door of the cell and they just sit in there. Old patterns, old sin, old problems. Back in the year 2000, the Reuters News Service ran a story about a guy named Marvin Stewart. Marvin was 76 years old when he got out of prison and he'd spent most of his adult life in jail. One day he just stopped by the People's National Bank of Council Bluff, Iowa. and He walked in and he handed the teller a note that said, give me $100. After getting the money, he told the bank employees, I'll be in the parking lot waiting in my car. And when the police arrived, Marvin was just sitting in his car with the $100 sitting on the dash. When the police arrived, Stuart told him that what he really wanted was to go back to prison because it was all he had ever known. Marvin couldn't fathom a different way of life, so he returned back to his old way of life. He had the gift of freedom. He was actually living outside and free, but he never used the gift to change his life. You know, when I look at God's gift of life, I understand that the only fitting response to that gift is to give my life back in return. One of the ways I give my life back is by living differently. Not out of a relationship with God, but in a relationship with God. The Bible says that because of God's grace, I'm a new creature. And my new creature should live differently than my old creature did because that's the way it's supposed to be. Ephesians 4 says this. It says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires and to be made new in the attitudes of your mind, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Here's the problem. Putting off that old self and putting on that new self doesn't happen overnight. And we're a culture that says unless we see instant change, that there must be something wrong, so we end up getting frustrated and we simply walk away. I've learned something about the process of spiritual growth. It takes so much more than just trying. It actually takes training. So we've arrived at the virtue. The virtue are two words that we don't like talking about very often, and the words are self-discipline. And I want to make an assertion today, here in Bellingham and at Ferndale as well, that self-discipline is my inside-out response to God's gift. 1 Corinthians 9 says this, the Apostle Paul was an unbelievably disciplined man. He would have had to have been if you read his life story. And he says this, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I don't run like a man running aimlessly, I don't fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul just says it. If you want to live a godly life, it's more than just trying. You're actually going to have to train for it. Paul says you've got to dig down deep and do more than just accept the gift. You've got to live the gift out. And living that gift out means you have to understand the importance 
of self-discipline. Okay, now let's be real, all right? Let's have a really, really honest moment. Some of you were looking at the outline and you went ahead already. And some of you are already rolling your eyes because you're looking at the outline and going, great. Here we go. It's guilt trip time. I have a friend who just got saved at Easter. And I often use him. I run sermon ideas past him and message ideas past him. So this past week, I saw him. I took my little list and I said, what do you see when you look at this list? I loved his honesty. He goes, 10 more things to feel guilty about. That's a true statement, okay? Some of us are already looking at the list going, all right, you know, here's the deal. I already feel guilty because I don't pray enough. I don't read the Bible enough. I don't serve enough. And now you're going to give me an even longer list to feel guilty about. So I'm just going to check out right now and play solitaire on my iPhone. Okay, just so you know, I don't know if you know this or not, but the lights in here are pretty perfect. So every time you flip your phone open, your face actually glows on this side of the platform. So I know when you're texting and playing solitaire, okay? So I haven't seen any glow so far. Let's just keep it that way. And just trust me to stick with this just for a few minutes, okay? I'm going to tell you something. I don't blame you for the way you think about self-disciplines. I don't blame you. I mean, I grew up Baptist. We talk about self-disciplines all the time. And when I saw the word spiritual discipline, self-discipline, this is what I thought. Because they gave me the same list when I was growing up. I thought, yeah, that's discipline. One day, God's kids were bad. God got angry. He grounded all of us. And these are the chores that we got assigned to try and make ourselves right again. That's the way I looked at all this stuff. This, this is punishment. I mean, I, I have to do this because somewhere along the line, I made God angry. And now this is my punishment. And I've got to do it. Otherwise, I've got to stay in my room for the rest of my life. And we think that when we see the word discipline. I thought spiritual disciplines were a punishment. Let's rethink the word, okay? Discipline can be punishment, but can also be what allows us to accomplish great things in our life. I mean, think about it. Learning a new language takes discipline. You can't just snap your fingers and speak French. It doesn't work that way, okay? Being a writer takes discipline. Becoming a great football player takes discipline. Anything that's truly great and worthwhile in your life If you're going to accomplish it, it takes discipline. And we don't like that word, discipline. Can I tell you what a lack of discipline ends up doing? A lack of discipline ends up doing nothing, living in their mom's basement, wearing Superman pajamas, eating Cheetos all day, and blogging about how unfair life is. That's what lack of discipline actually results in, okay? Discipline on the other side actually results in a life that can have an effect and change the world. Disciplines are the learned behaviors we have that allow us to achieve God's purpose for us. So I'm going to actually run through 10 areas of spiritual self-discipline, and I, I just dare you to stay with me all the way through, okay? And then we're going to talk about what not to do with the list when we're done. All right, here we go. Number one is this, 10 areas of spiritual discipline. Number one, it's reading, studying, and memorizing the Bible. Okay, now I know some of you, your instant response is read, Study, memorize. Not in my lifetime. Okay? Let me make a confession. I'm not a big reader. And my favorite thing to do is not to sit in my office and study. And memorizing is some of the hardest work that I try to do. I am not a good memorizer. I try. That's why I bring notes with me every single week. Because I just don't memorize very, very well. 
Okay? That stuff is unbelievably hard for me, but this is what I know. I know this beyond a shadow of a doubt. The Bible has every answer. God says, I'm going to need for my life under any situation. And I can't find the answer unless I go looking for the answer. But when I look for the answer and find the answer, I can take it, hide it down deep in my heart. And when my life gets squeezed, not if my life gets squeezed, when my life gets squeezed with pressure and temptation and hurt and pain and sickness, when my life gets squeezed, those things that I've hidden down deep in my heart, the things that I've read, the things that I've studied, the things that I've memorized, when I get squeezed, that's what drips out the bottom. If you want to know how godly a person is sometimes, you watch them under pressure and you watch what comes out of their mouth, you watch what happens in their brain and watch what happens in their heart. If they have been reading, studying, and memorizing, that's what's going to drip out. True? That's just what it is. So what we put in matters deeply in our soul. Secondly, another area of spiritual self-discipline. It's the meditation and application of the Bible. Scripture says more than just being hearers of the Word of God, we're called to be doers of the Word of God. The Bible actually says, don't merely listen to the Word. Do what it says. I mean, where did we miss the simplicity of that one? Don't just read it. Don't just hear it. Don't just go to church and have somebody lecture you about it. Actually do what it says. Apply it to your life and see what actually happens. So let me put this into practical terms, okay? I've been meditating on a scripture this last little while. It's one of my favorite scriptures. It says, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Okay, honest moment. I got angry at some people this past week. They were not meeting my expectations, and I got frustrated with them. And I started thinking very bad thoughts about some brothers and some sisters because I just didn't think they were getting it. And as I was kind of sifting through their sins in my head, a verse that I had been meditating on just kind of came and sat itself right down on top of my attitude. Love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. And God reminded me of something. Every single person that I was frustrated with sometime in the last six months has done something in my life. They all have this in common. They forgave me at some point for something that I had done. Love covered my anger because I applied what I knew to be true. And no matter how much I wanted to judge them, Scripture kept saying this, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Okay, let's move to number three. It's having an ongoing, ongoing honest conversation with God, otherwise known as prayer. After each one of these, I listed out just a whole bunch of scriptures. I hope you actually take it this week and go and look at it. Find out whether or not I'm telling you the truth or not. Okay? Prayer is both speaking to and listening to God. We tend to do this part really, really well. God, here's my list. Here's my lecture. I need you to do this. Sign on the dotted line. This is my plan for my life. Just the endorse right here. We're going to be just good. Okay? We do the speaking part really, really good. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about how we actually need to do that listening part a whole lot more. 
okay? I said this in a previous message. The most honest conversations you should have in your life should be with the God who created you because nothing you're going to say is going to shock him. He knows what you're going to say before it even comes out of your mouth, which should allow you to have a vibrant, personal conversation, ongoing, honest conversation with God that doesn't even trip during the day. It's just perpetual. It just continues to roll out of you. Okay? Number four is fasting. This is one that I'm just really enjoying learning about. Okay? Let me help us understand this. Fasting is a spiritual discipline that happens when one of God's children puts aside food for the sake of devoting themselves to an honest conversation with God. Okay? Let me make it clear. Okay? If you just decide to skip lunch, that's not fasting. It doesn't count. That's a diet and not a good one. Okay? Okay? Fasting is when you forego food, make yourself intentionally weak so that God can become intentionally strong. Fasting is when you deprive yourself of food so that you can go into a prayer closet and pray and plead with God because you're looking for some kind of a spiritual breakthrough. You're looking for an answer. You're looking for a peace. And you're willing to forego something your body needs in order to be able to hear God clearly. All right? This is an amazing, amazing, untapped area, especially in our culture, because we're just really, really good at taking care of our needs all the time, aren't we? I mean, there's a restaurant on every single street corner, it seems like. And the Bible actually says, if you want to be self-disciplined and get a breakthrough, that there are things you can do to make yourself intentionally weak, because when we are weak, he is strong. Okay, here's the next one. It's solitude. Solitude is the spiritual discipline of getting alone with God, and it's an amazing discipline to pursue. We talked in the last couple of weeks about our need for quiet. The primary reason why we need quiet as God's people is not because we just need a timeout. It's because we read scripture over the last couple of weeks where it says God doesn't show up in an earthquake. God doesn't show up in a firestorm. God doesn't show up in a windstorm. God shows up and he gently whispers to us. It would just make sense if we're going to hear a whisper. We're probably going to need to turn the volume down in our life. And we do that through solitude. Here's the next one. The spiritual discipline of living in community. I'll make another admission here. I'm an introvert, so this one is tough for me. I like being alone. I like doing my own thing. But I cannot get around the simple fact in Scripture that Christianity is a team sport. Do we understand that? It's a team sport. If you're trying to go it alone, I'm going to tell you something. You are ripe for the devil's picking because he loves to isolate people and convince you you're just fine on your own, and you're not. We need each other. You need me, and I need you. We need each other. I just, and I'm just going to hit this one because it's so unbelievably important. Being in a small group of people who can love you, pray for you, help you, support you, admonish you, challenge you, push you, care for you, and be cared for by you. It's absolutely essential for spiritual growth. And I'm going to tell you something. Don't wait for us to try and find you a community of believers to grow with. you got to find them on your own. You have to go and seek them out. Don't ever underestimate the power of a group of two or three spiritually committed people who meet on a regular basis where you could use your spiritual gifts and have them use theirs in your life. I am so unbelievably blessed. I have little pockets of people, some of them from Christ the King and some of them outside of Christ the King. And we do life together. 
We're exercising the spiritual discipline. Is it sometimes inconvenient? Oh, you have no idea. Sometimes it's terribly inconvenient. But every time I walk out, I go, that was awesome. That was awesome. Here's the next one. It's living a life of worship. I know you've heard me say this before, but worship is not just singing. Worship is anything you lay your hand to that brings honor and glory to God. That means this. Mom and dad, wiping off the face of a sick child is an act of worship as a parent. Coaching soccer can be an act of worship if your goal is to influence those players on your team in a godly direction. Singing a song of praise can be worship. Building a home that will be dedicated to God's purpose, that can be worship. Sitting with a brother who's in trouble and getting up underneath of the load that they're carrying and walking alongside of them, that can be worship if the outcome is directed to God's glory. As God's children, we should be continuously and perpetually worshiping God with every single thing we do. Driving the guide can be an act of worship if your heart's in the right place. Standing in the grocery line can be an act of worship if your heart's in the right place. Here's the next one. It's keeping a faith record. Sometimes we call it journaling. You know, one way to be reminded of God's faithfulness is to write it down. I love going back through my prayer journals because of all the red lines that are in my prayer journals. Every time God answers a prayer request, I put a red line through it. And I have stacks of old prayer journals that are filled with answered prayers. But sometimes you've got to remind yourself of God's faithfulness. So you've got to write them down. Answers to prayer, prayer requests. Write down your arguments with God, your burning questions, your thoughts and your meditations. Get them down so you can look back and actually see the journey that you've been on. I mean, if you want to look at it this way, Think about this. The Bible is really a journal of many, uh, of many of the author's personal walk with God. Theirs was inspired, and God gave it to you to inspire you. Yours is intensely personal. And when you look back over where God's fingerprints ended up, I promise you, you will be so unbelievably amazed. Because in moments when you thought he was missing, you give it a couple of years and look back and go, oh, there he was. I just couldn't see him. Here's the next one. Sharing your faith with people who don't know Jesus. It's a spiritual discipline. And one that, that, that I think is just so unbelievably underutilized. I mean, I, just think about this. We, we talked about amazing grace at the beginning. We have amazing grace, which means this. We have good news. Not just good news. We have the best news that anybody can have. Because the world is dying from a condition called sin. And we as the followers of God, we have the cure to the common sin. Have you thought about that? We have the cure to the common sin. If you had the cure for cancer, how crazy would it be that you would not share that with somebody? I mean, we wouldn't even think about that. That would be absolutely ludicrous. We have the cure to the common sin, and yet what do we do? We sit mute. We sit mute, even though God says, freely you have received, freely give. I'm at Starbucks last week, sitting by myself in the corner with a cup of coffee. Two guys come and sit on the, at the table next to me. And the guy, this young guy, college student, says out loud, I just wish somebody would come along and tell me what the purpose of life is. I 
I just got to read my book. Are you kidding me? I mean, what an amazing opportunity. I'm just like, hey, you don't know me, and I'm not a freak. But could I try and answer that question for you? Amazing one-hour discussion. Did he accept Jesus on the spot? Absolutely not. Does he have some some things to think about? Oh, I pray so. He had a lot of strange ideas about Christians. Hopefully we got to straighten out just one or two of those and talk about Jesus too. Okay? Let me put it bluntly. Church, tell somebody. Freely you have received, freely give. Okay, and here's the last one. It's strategic service. The best way I know to grow spiritually is to serve. When you give yourself away in the name of Jesus, it demands honesty, it increases loyalty, it teaches humility, and it always demands sacrifice. You never lose when you serve. Never, ever, ever do you lose when you serve. Maybe we can think about it this way. God wants to do something in you so that he can do something through you. He wants you to develop the spiritual discipline so that you have something to actually give. Now, okay, we finished the list, and I didn't see anybody's face glow, so I I don't think we have any solitaire players going right now. Okay, so... Stick with me, okay? We finished the list, and now I'm going to beg you to do something, okay? I'm going to beg you to do this. Don't turn it into a checklist. Okay, Monday morning. Pray and read the Bible, meditate, fast, skipping lunch. Don't do that. Because the second you do that, you turn something that is supposed to be beautiful into a sense of duty. And the second it's got a sense of duty attached around it, I guarantee you, you're going to be like me in super push-ups. You're going to start with good intentions, but you're not going to get anywhere. Instead of seeing it as a checklist of things you have to do, look at it as an amazing list of opportunities. Let me tell you why this is so unbelievably important to me. I told you before I went on my six-week break that I was in a pretty dark place. Tired, exhausted, emotionally overwrought. Just, and I was even in a darker place than I thought I was. Because sometimes I have found it's not until you step into the light that you go, well, that was really dark where I just came from. Alone, disillusioned, just trying to figure a whole bunch of stuff out. Not in my relationship with CTK, but in my relationship with my Savior. And I learned this. When you're adrift on an ocean of despair, the only guiding lights that you find are the dimly lit buoys of self-discipline that you put in the water that you laid out in advance. You see, when you get lost and you can't find your bearings, you start looking. And I will promise you, what you're going to see if you laid them out in advance are these dimly lit buoys in an ocean that help guide you home. So I am lost, trying to figure things out. And I hear scriptures that I memorized as a kid coming back to me. I'm trying to figure out, do I even want to preach anymore? And I hear scriptures ringing in my bed, or ringing in my head saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. 
And I'm going back through my Bible, and I'm finding old sections that I underlined with dates and, and situations beside them. And I'm able to look back and go, boy, God got me through that. Maybe he can get me through this. And there are times when, when you just have to find your way. And I'm telling you, this stuff doesn't seem that important until you're in the middle of a spiritual crisis and then you run back to what you know. I hear this phrase a lot from people. I'm just trying to be like Jesus. You know where we get that? We get that from this little saying. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Can I tell you something? That's garbage. That's garbage. If you just keep trying and trying again and don't change anything, you're never ever going to get anywhere. I mean, instead, it works like this. It's not try, try again. It's try, then learn something, figure out what went wrong, create a brand new plan, and then try again. So here's a thought. Instead of trying to be like Jesus, what if we were training to be like Jesus? What if we stopped trying to be like Jesus, and instead we were training to be like Jesus? What if we thought, there's going to come a moment when I'm going to be lost on an ocean of despair, so I better put out some markers so that no matter how far off the track I get, I can always find my way back home again. What if we worked this way? What if we looked at this list as a group of get-tos instead of a group of have-tos? I mean, I was thinking about this the other day. I don't have to love my wife. I get to love my wife. 21 years. I don't have to preach the gospel of Jesus. I get to preach the gospel of Jesus. Are you with me this morning at all? Think about this. You don't have to read your Bible this week. You get to read a love letter from God Almighty addressed to you. Somebody, okay, let's do it this way. You don't have to say amen ever. You get to say amen every once in a while. Because something starts resonating inside of your heart. You don't have to share your faith this week. You get to share your faith this week. You don't have to worship next week. You get to worship next week. You don't have to come to church. You get to come to church. Jesus didn't have to die on a cross. He chose to. We don't have to do any of this. We get to. You don't have to pray. You get to. Oh, poor you. You get to have a conversation with Almighty God. You are so blessed. You don't have to skip a meal. You get to. You don't have to do any of this. You get to. And my prayer is because you get to that you'll be inspired to not get stuck here. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning in this precious group of brothers and sisters. May you bless them, not in their trying to be like Jesus, but in their training to be like Jesus. God's self-discipline is something that easily triggers guilt. I pray that this would be guilt-free and that we would no longer look at self-discipline as a list of have-tos, but instead a list of get-tos. And we will give you praise as the self-disciplined people of God. Amen.